Hello, everybody. Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com where you will find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. My name is Adam Homie. I'm your host, and I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. And today, we have a treat for you. This is about identifying and correcting workplace problems. What we're going to share today is relevant, whether you are an employer with uh, W-2 type employees, where you also pay benefits and retirement and things like that, or if you're dealing with contractors, pretty much anything where it involves leading a team and having people who report to you and any place where you have more than one person working together and you have a culture. We're going to be working on identifying and correcting those workplace problems. And I know that some of what we're going to cover today is going to be relevant to all those areas because I kind of peeked ahead and I've also been in the green room for a few minutes here with today's guest. His name is Ed Epley of the epleygroup.com. Let me just tell you a little bit about him before we introduce him. He's a global expert in professional management, sales strategy, and performance management. As a principal consultant for the Table Group, which is a Patrick Lencioni company, and operator of the Epley Group, he has worked with executive teams at multinational companies around the world. His clients include a who's who of business category leaders, such as names you might have heard of once or twice, like, I don't know, BMW, Bloomberg, DSW, Goodyear, Tire and Rubber Company, and others. So a very seasoned professional, somebody who has a lot to share with us today. So let's bring him in. Ed Epley, come on in. The weather's fine. <laughs> Thank you, Adam. Excited to be with you and your audience. And just reading off that first part of your official bio, I'm not sure if I'm worthy to be in the same place as you. And I'm on, and you're on my show. So now I shared people that, with people the what's what of who Ed Epley is. But I imagine at this point, we have some listeners who are leaning in. They're opening a separate browser tab. And they're binging the Yahoo out of the Googles trying to find out who this Ed Epley is. That's spelled E-P-P-L-E-Y. You're welcome. And going to this website, theepleygroup.com. So what I'd like to do before we get into what I know is going to be a very exciting conversation is just take a step back and have you tell us a little bit about your trajectory and what's brought you to where you are today at serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and making that difference for your community market and audience. Um, I spent the first 20 years of my business career uh, figuring out what I was good at and um, what was intuitive for me, Adam, and what I was not good at. And then uh, that enabled me at basically at about age 40 to really focus and, and really go down a pathway where I knew I could spend my time and energies uh, making the most difference for the most uh, people and uh, doing the work that would be intuitive for me. So that, that's really how my career has been divided half and half. Yeah. Um, 
in that in that first half, generally, what what I found out was that um, I was really good at sales. Uh, I enjoyed working with others. I found out that I was not a good employee. No, I, no, I, I already knew it. I confirmed it. That's probably a better way to say it. I confirmed <laughs> I was not a good employee. Um, I was uh, really good at starting businesses, but not operating them. And while I could manage people, I didn't enjoy it. And I didn't uh, want the responsibility ultimately that, that went with having to be a manager of others. And so that, that really led me to focusing on helping others in their careers to not do what I didn't do that well. Right. I'm with you. And, you know, I think some of us go through it. I think most of us go through it, actually, but only some of us are candid enough to admit that we don't always get into work, whether it's the career we choose or the business we start, knowing for sure that it is the intersection of our brilliance or passion or that there's brilliance or passion present. Like my own trajectory is I, uh, I, I, went to Penn State. I got a degree in political science with minors in history and Middle East studies. I thought I was going to go on to law school and then decided uh, at the very end of my second senior year that that just wasn't happening. So I cast around for a year and a half in a series of crummy jobs, one of which was so bad that I celebrate the day I was asked to resign as my second birthday and was featured <laughs> in an international Amazon bestseller about that story. So who got the last laugh on that one? There you go. Went to MBA school, got my uh, got my MBA at Duquesne University, concentration in human resource management. And at the time, I was already sort of in that career because I was working in a training department for a fairly large company right across the street from Duquesne University. So I did the usual networking, interviews, job offers, turned it all down uh, because I caught the entrepreneurial bug and I started a firm that dealt with uh, assisting training and development companies with creating their curriculum basically is how I can describe yeah. it in one sentence. Yeah. I had a couple clients and because back then I didn't know what I didn't know and I didn't know what questions to ask. I basically just sat there for two and a half years getting promoted the same day job into a different department where some of the brilliance was there, but the passion at that point certainly wasn't having the side gig where the brilliance and the passion were there, but the money wasn't quite catching up yet. Cause I didn't know what questions to ask. Finally, 2005, I jump off full time. I uh, started attending some conferences, and next thing you know, Ed, I'm a marketing guy. Yeah. yeah. All right. All right. I'm good at it. Uh, I have brilliance there. I am a fast learner when it comes to internet marketing technologies, which meant I could charge high rates very quickly and yep. have people literally beating down my door. Yep. But you know, when I really came down to it, I allowed the influx of money to disguise the fact that I was about as passionate about it as I was about sticking a butter knife into my own head and performing a lobotomy on myself without a mirror. Yeah, yeah. So I went through a period, as our listeners know, where I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. And ultimately, I've kind of evolved to where I am now. And in a way, I'm kind of coming back to that whole thing because some of the work that I do with some of my 
consulting clients is around the organizational culture, how to deal with problems with team building, uh, getting people to follow through on deadlines, getting people to buy in to the mission and vision. So some of the education and some of the original brilliance of passion have circled back. And in my uh, new media agency, In Demand Expert, we focus on things that are related to that, as a matter of fact, how to use some of those same concepts to make a person an engaging guest or host of a podcast or live stream or what have you. So it's interesting you brought that up about not, you know, spending time figuring out what you're good at, what you're not good at, what you like, what you don't like. And yes, Ed, I was labeled unemployable too. <laughs> well, you know, we either know we're labeled that or we don't know it and we label ourselves that. But one way or the other, we fall into that category if, if when it all comes down to it, right? I, 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 think, I think ultimately uh, that we all need to make our own decision and to be candid about that. Now, there are people who are extremely employable and, you know, like being a, you know, shall we say a cog in the wheel, Right. But their vision, but their version of the value proposition is, yes, I understand I'm a cog in this wheel and I need to be a strong cog so the wheel doesn't break while it's turning and the whole thing collapses. Yep. So right. yes, I'm a valuable person. At the same time, I don't really want to strike out on my own. I want to be part of the team and then I want to go home and make dinner for my family. Nothing my wrong with that either because the world is, 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 is that great philosopher Norm Peterson once said, the world needs bench. The world needs bench warmers, so I might as well be me. <laughs> I I can relate very much to what you're saying. You know, it it it. Um, a couple of things you made me think of. Um, I I've written a book called Let's Be Clear, and in the in, it's about the six disciplines that professional managed management pros use and, and yeah. at a high level. And in in the strategy section, I talk about who your ideal customer is. And this, this actually relates to whether or not you have a business or if you're just thinking about where you should be focused and where, where you ought to live your life. But the, the four, it's a Venn diagram that has four circles and the, and the four circles are what's most profitable uh, or who's your most profitable kinds of clients. Um, what's intuitive when you do it, you really don't, it doesn't feel like work when you do it. It's just, right. it, you, you're good at it. Um, what's growing, you know, where's a market that's, that's getting bigger as opposed to being stagnant or declining. And then where do you get to most energy or most enjoyment? And if you can, if you can get at the intersection of those four things, either for a customer or for the kind of work you do, it's not going to feel a lot like work. Right. I think, I think there, I think there's something to that. Um, I know that there are some folks out there, including some friends of mine who say that, uh, you know, forget about passion. Passion is stupid. And you know what? I see their point about that too. Uh, that ultimately we're here to render service and we're here to do what we're really good at. And I also hear from folks and I, remember being at some, I think it might have been a family gathering and it was some friend of some cousin or somebody uh, who went on this, this long soliloquy about how if you're enjoying work, there's something messed up with your brain because work is not there to be enjoyed. I think that's a, uh, <laughs> I think that's a choice that most people don't know they have available to them. Right. I think I, I, one way or the other, we have to get our need for some kind of purpose in our lives met. I absolutely believe that. Right. And if we don't get it from our work, we will have to find it in something we do outside of work. 
but but when you can combine it with your work where you can have purpose beyond a paycheck where right. you can feel like something uh, you're contributing to something bigger than yourself or doing something daunting or um, helping defeat a common enemy, whatever, or whoever that might be. Uh, when, when that's present in your work, then it's amazing how fast the days go by. It's amazing how much energy you can uh, have all day long to do what you do. Um, and it's how it's, it's amazing how much you can get done that you didn't think you could get done when you have that as your energy or the, the fuel for your engine. Yeah. I, and I, and I believe that in, you know, if you're in a place where you find out that your brilliance is not and your passion are not appreciated. And with that company I worked for, for four and a half years after I got diagonally promoted, I mm. actually found myself in that situation where uh, my innovation was not appreciated. My brilliance was not appreciated. My passion was not appreciated. Uh, what I was supposed to care about was how low my position was on the org chart and to behave accordingly. Yep. Well, screw that. Right. Life's too and, short. And, yeah, and and, 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 where, and where I translate that into a positive message is, you know, you can look at a situation you're in, you could say, well, you know, I hate living in this climate because it snows all the time. Okay, so why don't you do what I did and get out of Pennsylvania and come to Nevada where it doesn't snow except up in the mountains and you can travel there if you want snow. Right. Uh, they say, but, but uh, then I'd have to move, I'd have to sell the house, I'd have to get a new job, I'd have to prepare the kids. And I say, so how long do you think it would take you to get all that together? <laughs> oh, about three years. And, and so I'll say, and this is my point, Ed, I'll say, cool, so get started today. Yep. Wait until tomorrow you'll still be complaining about the snow and where you're living, but it's yeah. going to take you three years and one day at that point. Um, again, we all have choices in life that, that sometimes it's way too late that we realize there was a choice that, that I decided not to, to make. Right. I, exactly. I, I, I think one of the ugliest emotions in life is regret. Yeah, I think so. So speaking of helping people not have regret about where they work, and that's why I kind of brought that up because I want to segue into our topic today of identifying and correcting workplace problems. Ed, you're out there, you're in the trenches, you got your hands on it. What are some of the biggest workplace problems we're seeing today? Um, one of the things that I do to try to help clients is, is to take things that appear to be complex and make them simple. That's kind of the way my mind works. So when I, when I look at workplace problems, I always look at it through the lens of, is the business smart enough? And are they healthy enough? And does, does the executive team, owner, leaders of the business, how much do they understand the impact their behavior has on the financial results of the business? So those are the three lenses I always look at a company. Couple, yeah. of, rule, couple of rule of thumbs. Uh, well, first of all, let's put a definition on smart. Smart means you have the right infrastructure. You have the right strategy, structure, technology, finance, marketing to allow that business to scale and to, to do it profitably. So you've, you've built a good uh, infrastructure that will support doing more of whatever you've decided that you're going to do and that the market will reward you for doing. That's the smart component. Healthy is we have the right culture. It's driven by some purpose beyond making money. We've got minimal politics. Um, we've, we've got uh, minimal confusion. Um, people are highly engaged. The good people seldom leave um, without, you know, uh, some good reason, usually not because they're running away from us, but rather they're running to something else kind of a right. thing. And, and then the last part is coming to the appreciation of how much impact your personality has 
on the financial results and that how most of us are hardwired not to make money. So most of us think we're rational when it comes to the financial decisions that we're making in our work, even in our lives, but most of us aren't. It's, it's called behavioral finance. So I always look at, at situations and businesses uh, with those three lenses. And the smaller the company, usually the healthier they are and the uh, unawareness they have about the need to be smart or the desire to do the work to put smart into their business. The bigger the company, they got smart nailed. They're all about smart and they've lost their culture. They have uh, politics everywhere rampant in the organization about not telling each other the truth, you know, um, uh, what we call artificial harmony. Uh -huh. um, and then all businesses suffer from a lack of awareness of the executives about the connection between their behavior and financial results. So, yeah, I, yeah, I think you're right about a lot of that, Ed. And, uh, and I actually have been witness to that twice in my life. During my uh, own uh, corporate trajectories, uh, during that time I spent before I became an entrepreneur, I was there for it twice, where a company starts out, they're young, they're revolutionary, everybody's brilliant and passionate about it. Uh, we're not looking so much at where somebody is on the org chart, but what they're bringing to the table. And yeah. we love fresh ideas. If somebody wants to take a shot at it, we give them the space to do it. Absolutely. And, then, and then they get big. And then they get corporate and then next thing you know you're actually getting back to having people punch time clocks in business offices and you have a employee handbook well you should always have an employee handbook uh and that's for everybody's good i mean i can if if we have time and if it fits with what you're going to share with us i can tell you a story about how i use the employee handbook to stick it to a senior manager once i mean that was a fun story but uh yeah i mean i mean even if you have just uh i mean as soon as you have an employee you should have an employee handbook uh i have several friends who i have several friends in hr who will tell you that Get the employee handbook done. It'll save you millions. So I can't who, argue who with that. Who's it written for, Adam? Who's the employee handbook written for? It's written for the lawyers, basically. I think it's written for the 3 to 5% of your employees who need it. That goes to another thing, which is many roles and regulations that we have, whether it's companies and even whether it's the government, are permanent overreactions to temporary blips on the radar. Don't disagree at all. That's, yeah. my, that's why I say when a company gets big, they, they absolutely have to have that employee handbook. I'm not yeah. suggesting you don't need one when you're small. But oh, okay, when, I misunderstood. When you're small, you've got people all aligned and cohesive and you, you know each other and you really don't need rules to, conduct, to, to keep people's behavior in line because right. the culture's doing it and you know each other and you care enough about each other that, that, that if somebody misbehaves, the boss isn't the person that says we don't do that here. Somebody next to him says it. Right. When, you, when you get big, that's when you, you basically have lost your culture. So that's why the employee handbook becomes pretty critical because you need, you need doc, documentation that there are certain behaviors that are just unacceptable. That's what I think. Yeah, like, yeah, like, I mean, like you should, yeah, I think you and I are in agreement. You should always have something that says sexual harassment is yes. bad. Yes. <laughs> uh, you cannot be forced to work overtime without pay if you fall into this category yeah you should always have that written down and that's actually for everybody's protection Correct. and it also and it also gives you a clear thing we're able to say what you did is out of alignment with our rules regulations and our culture it says right here in this document that you're responsible for knowing so it helps to reduce ambiguities that could lead to lawsuits at the same time, are we depending on it as the primary arbiter of what we do every day? That, I think, is where we get into trouble. Correct.
Yeah, so a uh, couple things you shared with me before, a uh, couple key phrases and such I want to think thought were pretty interesting is, uh, first of all, you mentioned this thing called a, actually, you know, before we talk about the stop doing list, uh, planted the seed, what are the management disciplines that you found help people run better businesses? There are six of them. Uh, I got exposed to these at an organization called Aileron in Dayton, Ohio. Yeah. Aileron is a uh, campus to teach uh, entrepreneurs, small business owners, how to professionally manage their business. And so these six disciplines are leadership, strategy, people development, organization performance, structure, and culture. So yeah. some combination of those are required. In fact, every business is doing some version of those. It's just a lot of times when people haven't been trained and taught, they don't understand when they're doing one versus another. They don't understand or see them as discrete disciplines that they can, they can uh, master and, and put to use in the right place and time to help them get better results than they might otherwise. Yeah. And I'd like to remind our listeners, go back to businesscreatorsradioshow.com and subscribe. Because if you're listening to this for the first time, you want to go back and get the replay. Ed is giving you lists and diagrams and things you can implement right now. This is like a coaching session, folks. You should be, you should be really getting, dialing into this. It's very important stuff. So now let's get to that stop doing list because this intrigues me. Well, I, I'm not the author of the idea. Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great, is the, the first place I saw it mentioned. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I've the, seen it other places, too. It's not exactly a new concept, but what's new about it is what Ed Epley's about to say. Yeah, the, 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 the real power behind it is that too often we're trying to do too much. And we, uh, Peter Drucker is the one who first talked about the inability of business executives to abandon anything. And so you, you see so many organizations that um, don't have the bandwidth that they need to be able to focus. So as a result, uh, what I love about Jim Collins' Stop Doing List is it forces you to look at everything you're doing and, and just identify two or three things that we're going to stop doing, not to do something new, but just simply because now we'll have more time to do the few disproportionate things that will really matter. So the, the goal with the Stop Doing List, in my mind, is to abandon certain things or make them not a priority at all for the at least temporarily so that you can say for the next three months we don't have to do this so that we can spend more time on these one or two things that will really change the business yeah that's something that in my own consulting work with companies i uh this, this is something that we sometimes need to help them adjust to that thing that we keep saying we're going to get to that yeah. keeps sliding off the radar screen, mm -hmm. there's usually a reason for that. And the reason is not usually that somebody's dropping the ball. More likely, more urgent, more potentially profitable, more fun, let's be candid, more fun right. opportunities keep knocking it down. And the reason it keeps falling off the radar screen is because it lacks the urgency. It might even have the fun. It might even have some of the profitability, but it doesn't have the urgency. So naturally, it's going to keep coming down. There will come a time when either there's really you're really just in a slow period, and you know the people somebody needs something to do that they'll just pull that one up and get it done, or something will evolve in the marketplace or the, the environment of business that'll make it an urgency. And at that point, boy, it'll rocket to number one in ten seconds. 
uh, that is just the nature of how things are. I think that part of the behavior that we uh, naturally use to be successful when we start a business, Adam, as entrepreneurs, is we chase everything uh, yep. for the most part in pursuit of sufficient revenue to keep the business going. Yeah, yeah. I raise my hand. I raise my hand. Yes. Yeah. And so we, so we're very good at spinning a lot of plates and um, monetizing any number of them so that we run the business and, and stay afloat. Eventually we figure out a certain few of those plates really are what will allow us to have a, a, a business that's sustainable. Um, and, and so we try to focus on those, but we are so afraid as entrepreneurs of leaving go of anything that brought us any success in the past, believing that we are somehow limiting our opportunities when we say no to certain things, when in fact, it's the, it's the ability to say no to certain things yep. that gives us the bandwidth to focus on a few things disproportionately that will give us more freedom, more success, and more of a sustainable business if we would just do those few things really, really well. Well, uh, as I like to say, say no to success. Yes. Say no to success. And you, and you, Ed, you know what I mean by that. And I think a lot of our listeners at this point in the context of our conversation know what I mean by that as well. Uh, I have been in this space for almost 20 years. I've been in it from different angles and different perspectives. And I have seen so many things come and go where people will make big offers from stages. They'll launch big things or what have you. And then they'll get to the point where they add all the must-have urgent bonuses. Yeah. And I can tell you that the as soon as I see this one bonus, it gets added to the list. I know the thing is headed for a train wreck. Do you know what that <laughs> bonus is? What's that? We'll build your website for you too. <laughs> see, you laugh because you know you know what I'm you know what I'm getting at. Oh, and, uh, and, and 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 in the aughts, before the year 2010, I used to own a website development firm. I'm not a web designer myself. I had to hire right. them and build a team around that to deliver the product. Right. Uh, but you know, this is a business I was in for five years. And yep. I can tell you that there was actually a line item on our revenue picture that consisted of people who offered, we'll build your website to use a bonus. And the people they thought were going to build the websites just disappeared on them. And, and we had to save their bacon. Right. I, uh, I, there, there have been, uh, I mean, I'm a generous person and I like to be fair with my pricing sometimes to a fault, but I can tell you that's the one place where I, 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 I knew they could hear me grinning through the telephone when I explained the premiums I was adding on to their fee for that. Yeah, I, I can see why you did it and I can see why they rewarded you in paying it because they knew it yeah. was the right thing to do. That's an, that's an example of things you should say no to. Um, so you have to ask yourself, were there really a bunch of people saying, hey, I'd love you to build a website for me, even though I know you're not a web designer? Right. And I know people that have had web design companies and who are web designers who were doing it when I first became an entrepreneur, who are still doing it today, uh, which means you're talking about a 16-year span. They were doing good with it back then. They're doing good with it now, and they've been doing good with it all along. And the reason why is because that is where their brilliance and passion lie. Yeah. They will I always be good at it because they love it and they're great at it. There's a... I mentioned the Aileron campus and there's a reflecting pond or pool that's outside the building. And when you stand on the second story, you can look down and in the, in the pool, you see the word focus. 
Yes. And, uh, and Clay Mattel, who was the owner of Imes Pet Foods, uh, built this campus. Um, you as a cat lover may know of Imes Pet Foods. Adam. Oh, of course. Yeah. And, um, and so he spent millions of dollars building this campus. And, and the whole idea is to help businesses be more successful so they can employ more people and make the communities where they operate better places to live. And one of my friends, Wes Geip, says, you know, uh, Clay, Clay could have put any word he wanted in that pool. Do you think it's, any, there, it's by accident that he put the word focus? And uh, I, I, I said to many people, I've never seen a business fail from being too focused. I've seen plenty fail because they couldn't. That's an interesting concept. I have a question that I urge people to ask, and I cover this in my book, Groundhog Days, an event, not a business strategy, which I'm wondering at, if you've at least, if you've at least heard of, you've picked up on the whole cat thing, and I haven't mentioned it the whole hour. Um, and, and in fact, this concept I feel is so important that it's a section of a chapter that I literally just repeat twice at two different parts of the book, word for word. And it, it, it drives you to ask the question, what would happen if we didn't do this at all? Yes. And you go through your list of everything you're doing every day and you ask the question over and over and over again. Uh, not only when you think, oh, this is bullshit. We don't need to be doing this. But also when you're thinking, yeah, this sounds really critical. Both times and everything in between, ask that question. What would happen if we didn't do this at all? And you would stun yourself how many things that you would be just fine just not even doing because candidly, nobody would notice and it wouldn't impact anything at all. What you would more likely gain is the benefits of the focus because now it's one less thing you're being pulled into. Do we have time for just a, a quick story about that? Oh, hell yeah, that's why we run an hour on this show because what I want our listeners to feel like is they're sitting in on a one-on-one -on -one mastermind session. Stories, Ed, please, we love stories. Back in the um, mid to late 90s in Columbus, there was a company called uh, CompuServe. Yes. And you're, you're old enough, Adam, that you remember when AOL and uh, CompuServe were kind of like the players in, in email. Are you kidding me? I remember when I had AOL and I used to log in and log out because I was hoping it would say, you got mail. And, <laughs> and Camaro Chick in St. Louis, Missouri had responded to my flirtatious texts. Yeah. So, so they had a, 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 a B2B side of CompuServe called CompuServe Network Services. Yep. And they were uh, doing virtual private networks at the time. And they were, they were the game changer in that. They were first in the market and doing a great job. And, and they, that, that what was so cool about it was they were flooded with businesses. And it was a, essentially a contracted subscription business with corporate entities. And so they, they would do uh, uh, ongoing contracts. And so every time you would get one of those installed, that meant recurring revenue every month for that contract to have access to a virtual private network where your people could be connected privately and talk remotely and yeah. um, do their business remotely. And they were so swamped with, with orders for these services that they could not get their contracts implemented fast enough. And so they were, they figured out, okay, we got, we're, you know, we're losing revenue every month by not getting these contracts up implemented quickly enough. So they went to different departments and one of them was a, a reporting department in the finance department. There were six, seven people working in here and this was back in the days, remember back at that time period when they were doing the big printouts, uh, reports were not emailed, they were a, a hard document that were bound together and they were all of these uh, 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 
sheets of paper that had all this information and data on it. And the premise would be that managers would look through that and get the information they wanted. Um, so they had, again, like I said, six, seven people doing these reports full time. And they said, temporarily, all of you are not going to do this work of printing these reports. And instead, you're going to help the legal department getting these contracts approved and implemented so we can generate the revenue from it. Right. And, but, and, and the concern was, well, what about the reports that all these people have been presenting or preparing and, and sharing with the organization? And the, and the default was, well, if somebody asks you for it, then you, we will make that report. But absent them asking, you just spend your time doing these, this contract. So the, the, they, they, they start down this path. And after 90 days, how many requests for reports did they get? I'm going to guess, uh, I'm actually going to put brain effort into this. And I'm going to say that there was probably one manager that wanted to get a copy of the report so they could prove to their manager they were looking at reports. It was, it was three. It okay. Was, so, so think about, what, to your point earlier, about do we really need to do this? Should we do it at all? Would anybody miss it if it's not being done? And so what they found was they had all these people generating all this paperwork all this information or data that was going out that nobody was looking at anymore. And that's the insidious nature of a lot of the work that goes on in businesses. If you yeah. can't stop every once in a while and say, do we need this? Should we do it? Should we test if it's valuable or not by not doing it? And most of us don't take time to do it. You know, um, I, and I've told this story before, um, as an entrepreneur and as a, a business owner, you would think that, uh, I mean, I have a, a CPA and a tax planner and a financial planner, and they're all the same person. Uh, so I don't do my own taxes or anything like that. Um, he sends me folders with stuff, and he tells me where to sign, where to mail it to, and what check to make for what amount. That's about the extent of my involvement in my taxes. Yep. That being said, um, I don't have a bookkeeper. I do all the entries in QuickBooks myself. Right. Let me explain this. Right now, the structure of my business is such that uh, our, you know, the majority of what we spend money on is routine and repetitive, so it's really not a big deal, number one. Yep. Number two, yeah, I could have a bookkeeper, and I could uh, charge this bookkeeper with responsibility for generating a report to me, but how do I even know what to ask for in that report, and how do they know for sure what to recommend should be in that report? <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, you may think, oh, well, of course I want to know A, B, C, D, and E. And the bookkeeper might be thinking, yeah, I should definitely tell my client A, B, C, D, and E. And then, and as you're bringing up that, really? Do you, does anybody actually care about that? Does that, and, and does that really, does knowing that information really impact anything? Let me explain Correct. to you why I do my own bookkeeping when, yeah, I could pay somebody $30 an hour and I could, uh, and I could make $300 off that same hour. It's real simple. Because there is nothing that's going to give me a picture of the cash flow picture of my business, like typing in how many goddamn GoDaddy domain renewals we have. Yes. Because yeah. that, and I, and I pulled up that simply because if you own a bunch of domains with GoDaddy or any registrar, GoDaddy is the one we use, um, you're going to find that every time you turn around, there's another $8.97 to renew that same domain. Yep. So now I'm thinking, for the month of July, I just had to enter $8.97 three times, and then twice it was actually $16.94, which means two of them hit at the same time, and I had to go back and edit the autofill properties in QuickBooks to accommodate that, and I had to stay awake enough to catch that so that my books remained accurate. Yeah. So what do you think the next question is? 
Tell me. Why did I just pay for six domain renewals when off the top of my head, I can only think of six websites that I have live? Because you kept some that you actually let, absolutely had uh, abandoned. You, pretty much. Yeah. It makes me think, okay, let's go back to these, this list of domains. So I've allocated more time to do the, book, the QuickBooks entry than it requires. I always allocate twice as much time as I think it's going to take. Yeah. Because now I can say, okay, well, we're going to pause right here, go to godaddy.com, log in, pull up the list of domains. I'm going to say, okay, so looks like these were those six, because I can tell by the renewal dates it was these six. So this one is something that I should have canceled three years ago. Bye-bye. This is an idea. Okay, are we actually, I, I, I got this domain because I thought I was going to do this thing. Are we going to do this or not? Should we bring this back up? Should we drop it? Should we set a date that we're going to review it? So I can't really think about, uh, you know, stuffteddybears.com right now, but maybe we'll think about it uh, in our annual planning. So now I go to my calendar and I make a note that we have the domain stuffteddybears.com, and we're going to include that as part of the annual plan, decide if we're going to do something with it or not. And then I see this other domain. Well, shoot, why don't I have that landing page up? Better get that landing page up. That's an obvious, that's an obvious traffic and leads opportunity. That's right. You're wasting Or, um, hey, I bought this domain. Oh, I'm supposed to get back to Ed about this thing we were talking about. I wonder if he's still interested. That's why I bought that domain. So you see what happened there is by injecting myself into a process like that, it actually prompts me to ask that question. What would happen if we didn't do this at all? What would happen if I just let that domain go? And it allowed things that matter to rise to the surface and allowed things that don't matter to me going over and switch and turn the auto renew off so I don't pay for it again. There's two things you make me think of with that example. And it's so real. And it's, it's repeated over and over again in, in all of our businesses and our and actually in our personal lives, right? Yeah. How many apps do we subscribe to that, that we don't use anymore? Yep. But, but there's, there's data that we have access to but that data has to be organized in a way that I can get information from it. But ultimately what we want is insight. We want, we want understanding that we didn't have previously. So that, so however you can get to that, it's really what we want. It's we don't, none of us wants data for data's sake. We want right. the information that it has and then the themes or the patterns and the insight that yeah. allows us to make a better decision. Yeah. The, the second thing is the attitude you're expressing that uh, uh, oftentimes is very situational. Sometimes we are good at it and other times we don't have it at all. And that's this constructive discontent that we need to be, be purposeful about improving all aspects of our business. Constructive discontent. I just want to say that phrase again, because yeah. I love it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not, it, it, there's a difference between never being satisfied, uh, which I think at some point tends to be demoralizing for the people around us. Yep. Versus this constructive discontent, which um, to me, it's, it's, it comes at the, the same problem, which is what do we need to do to be better? But it, but it also, it, it, you take time to acknowledge what's right. You acknowledge who helped get you to this, this point this far. Um, and so you don't demoralize people in pursuit of, of, of getting better. Yeah, I think I think there I think there's a case for that too. And you know, you make me think of something else here. Uh, one of the things I love doing is reading autobiographies because I like to see how people who are actually in situations dealt with things and their impressions on how things were that might have been reported 
maybe the same way, maybe a different way. And we looked at it from a media perspective. Yeah. So I, and I mentioned this one cause I love this example. Um, there, there's this guy, uh, his name is Dick Cheney. Remember him? Sure do. Yeah. He was our vice president for a while. He was also secretary of defense, chief of staff, all kinds of things. Well, one of, in one of his earlier jobs, he was the deputy chief of staff in Gerald Ford's White House, reporting to the chief of staff, another name we all remember, Don Rumsfeld. Oh, and, wow. That's right. That's yeah, right. exactly. Now, Rumsfeld had a management style where he had a, a zillion ideas. Zillions of ideas were just flowing out of his mind all day long. And his practice as a manager was he would have post-it notes on his desk. Every time he thought of something, he'd write it down. And then he'd stick it on, you know, he didn't have a computer monitor. This is 1974, but he'd stick it on the desk and he'd give it to, I believe it was his secretary who would pick up all these little, um, these little, uh, these little post-it notes. And the secretary, for one reason or another, started calling them snowflakes. The reason being is there was these constant flakes of ideas coming from Rumsfeld's brain. Oh, yeah. And she was exasperated over what to do with this. So she contacted his deputy, Dick Cheney. And Cheney, who met with Rumsfeld every day and knew what was actually important to the boss, would help her sort which one of these snow, which of these snowflakes actually needed to be acted upon and which could just be put in a pile aside for later. What a gift. Okay, here's where it gets, here's where it gets good. Cheney's in his office one day, and he uh, and he gets and he gets a call from Rumsfeld, and Rumsfeld is apparently to work for is a very abrupt, blunt guy to work with, and he says, "Cheney, get your ass down here now." Well, that wasn't exactly a new thing for him to say, so he figured, "Oh, I wonder what Don wants." So he goes down, and he sees Rumsfeld standing at the secretary's desk, and all these snowflakes are sitting up on the desk. The yeah. two piles. Yeah. And the secretary is looking at Cheney like, oh, my God, what have we done? <laughs> Rumsfeld just looks at the two of them and says, I just want you guys to know that I know what you're doing. Now get back to work. <laughs> so the, mor- the, moral, the moral of this is Rumsfeld fully understood that his people were supporting him yes. in sorting out his ideas. Yes. And that was just his own gruff, blunt way of acknowledging his appreciation. Yeah. And, and, and by the way, keep doing it, right? Yeah. I mean, that was all they needed to hear that you're doing. Yeah. The right thing. So that, that, I love that. That's a great story. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's one of the reasons I love autobiography so much because there's, um, you know, you can read any uh, textbook on employee relations and you can discover the 19 different ways you could deliver that message to show empathy, support and everything else. But I, th- I think Rumsfeld got the message across pretty clearly that uh what i what i would have gotten out of that is wow you guys know how crazy it is around here and you help keep me grounded thank you now keep doing it um all right i want i feel compelled based upon the rumsfeld story to tell you tell you to actually revisit just a little bit what i said earlier yeah i, I talked about there's a smart component to running a great business there's a healthy component and then there's this behavioral component yes and and, and what what rumsfeld and Probably there's certain people that say, well, gee, I mean, he sounds kind of like a horse's ass. You know, it's not like he wouldn't be a nice guy to work for. My guess is he was a, a great guy to work for in terms of making it clear what he wanted in terms of results. And that um, he really probably was not very tolerant of incompetence. That would be, that would be a pretty candid and fairly accurate assessment. Right. And, and uh, so certain people would say, well, gee, I don't know if I'd want to work for a guy or a gal like that. And the point would be you don't have to. Right. Right. If, if that's the kind of person you don't want to work for, 
Um, that's okay. That's why you have choices. You can go somewhere else and, and work other places. So you, part of what we have to recognize for certain organizations, certain times and places, um, a leader has to be willing and able to adjust their style from, from being very collegial to be very demanding, from yes. being, from being, being very, very patient to be very impatient. And, and part of your job, I think one of the most important things that a leader that's great does is improves the sustainability or the value of the business year over year. And what I mean by that, it, 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 if, if you, if whatever you need to do to make your business better able to withstand whatever the future holds, that if a leader does that, then they're being very successful. And there are a variety of kinds of ways of, to behave in order to make that happen. And, there, and it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. What, what has made you successful so far as a leader in your business may very well not take you forward from where you are today. You may have to change your style. You may have to change the way you communicate. You may have to change the amount of time you spend in details or don't. That, that, most, most, most people who are entrepreneurs really struggle with learning to be different based upon what the business needs from them. Right. That's very, that's very true. Now that now I'm thinking of another thing. And again, this goes back to autobiographies and studying leaders and things of that nature. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm saying this exactly right, although I know I'm going to get the point correct. Uh, there was some survey done of people who had worked, uh, again, we go back to the White House yeah. uh, for, for a certain time period. And these were people who had the ability to do a comparison between the leadership styles of President Ronald Reagan and his successor, President George H.W. Bush. Yeah. Now, let's get into their personalities very briefly. Reagan was kind of aloof. He was also, uh, he was also what we would think of as very much a classic introvert. Yes, it's possible to be a great communicator and also want people to leave you the hell alone. He was very introverted in his personality. So he had a close circle around him and he liked to spend a lot of time alone. Yep. He would wander through the halls of the White House between meetings and things like that, or sometimes he was just walking around. And he'd, if, you, if, you, if you made eye contact with him, he'd nod at you with this expression where he's saying, well, I guess they work here, so I'll say hi. <laughs> and then you had, then you had Bush, who uh, by most accounts was more of an extroverted personality, loved to communicate with people, uh, would pull a random staff person into his office just to thank him for doing a job well done. Uh, and sometimes would just randomly call somebody's mom or dad or, or spouse just to say, Hey, you know, so-and-so works for me. And I just wanted you to know, cause I know they're, you know, they're your loved one, how much they mean to me. Pretty special. Too. And, uh, and of those two people, which one do you think that, I, I think you already know there's a catch to this, and I'll get to that in a second, but I want to ask you, know, ask you the question. Uh, when asked, when these folks were asked which president was easier to work for, which one do you think they picked? Well, you would assume it'd be H.W. Uh, Bush. Ronald Reagan. Yeah. But, here's, well, a reason, here's a reason why. Right. It came down to understanding their roles. With Bush, uh, now granted, Bush had the presidency during a very chaotic time. It was the end of the Cold War. Um, there were also a lot of shifts with things happening in the Middle East. Uh, we had the thing in Panama. There's mostly chaos throughout his entire term. So uh, there, you know, looking at it on a surface level, there wasn't even a lot of room for rhyme or reason or a long-term plan because things kept changing at an extremely rapid pace. With Agreed. Reagan, you knew there were a few things. Uh, 
we're cutting taxes, we're, we're cutting taxes, we're building up our national security, and we're going to beat the communists. Yeah. yeah. And at any time, if Reagan came up to you and he was feeling actually conversational, he said, well, Ed, what are you working on today? You knew that you had to find a way to give an answer that had to do with lowering taxes, increasing national security, or beating the communists. Yeah, I and if you could put it within that frame, yeah. you knew you were likely to please him, and you also knew that when you were setting priorities for the work you were doing, you had specific questions you could ask, like, how does this help lower taxes? How does this help build national security? How does this help beat the communists? If it wasn't fitting in those categories, you might want to question whether you need to be doing it at all. Well, and as you point out, Adam, I mean, there was a, a lot, you could argue there was less uh, distractions, fewer distractions for Reagan than there might have been for Bush, but right. one, of got, one of them got reelected and one of them didn't. That, well, there is, there's a lot to that too. And, uh, and with Bush, we have somebody who went from like a 90% approval rating yeah. to 30 within the yeah. space of one year. That should just give you a perspective on the chaos of the environment surrounding him. Yeah. And, 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 and a lot of that had to do with read my lips, no new taxes. And then two years, <laughs> it was just absolutely untenable to yeah. keep that promise, yeah. which also speaks to a need for being careful what pronouncements you make, because uh, the words you say are usually good for the moment you say them. Oh, yeah. You, you got to be careful not to box yourself into a corner. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, because read my lips, no new taxes. Uh, there were other ways to say that where you could have uh, gone back and uh, you could have gone back and explained it in a way that enough voters would say, hey, I get it. But that was a little too definite, in my opinion. <laughs> made, made, made a good soundbite to get elected, but it wasn't such a good soundbite to get reelected. Amen. Yeah. Amen. And when you're a long-term leader of a company, you have to think about that as well. Uh, what could you be saying or doing now that could come back and boomerang you in a negative way down the road because the environment around you changed? Well, the, the, you know, one of, the, one of the attributes that we tend to like in our leaders uh, in business that, that, that we're going to want to follow is some, some capacity to be courageous. And what I mean by that, to act despite fear. Yes, and so we, 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 we find that generally attractive as long as it's not reckless. On the other hand, um, it, you could equate part of being courageous is to be decisive. But then there's also, as you said, the difference between being decisive and making pronouncements that, that this will never happen when, in fact, you know, we'll never sell this company. Well, that's really probably not wise to say. Right. Yeah, that yeah, which is also which is also why when you're crafting privacy policies for your website, you have to be real careful to say we will never share this information with anyone. That's really? Yeah. So what happens if you what happens if you acquire or get acquired? Game over. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. What do you have, what do you do? Delete your list? I don't think so because uh, when you're looking at a saleable asset in business, part of what determines saleability is whether it comes with its own audience and tribe. That's correct. Do what, what, what data that I want am I getting as part of this transaction? Yeah, correct. Correct. So uh, there's one other point. Uh, we have just a couple minutes left here. And this, this has been such a fun conversation. This is why I love the Business Creators Radio Show so much. We get to delve into these rel related things. Um, the storytelling approach is so much fun. Uh, you mentioned something called destructive heroes. What are they and why should we deal with them? 
Um, well, first of all, a destructive hero is someone who produces great results, but in doing that violates either stated or understood values or norms for behavior that we have in the organization. Uh-huh. And, and if this person was not producing the great results that they produce and behave the way they behave, acted the way they act, they would get reprimanded or asked to leave the company. But because they produce these exceptional results, what ends up happening is we make exceptions for these people and allow them uh, to continue to operate as they're operating, even though it violates our norms, stated or otherwise, because they're contributing so much to the success of the company. So, uh, essentially, so essentially what we're saying is that our values are for sale. Our values are situational. Yeah. And it, it so destroys the uh, credibility of the president, the owner, uh, the executive team, when you allow that to go on, because people know full well that this person who's producing these exceptional results gets to behave how they want, despite the fact that the organization says we don't tolerate that. So from, at the table group, Pat Lencioni's company that, that I've been fortunate to spend a lot of time with, the, the whole premise behind a healthy company is you would absolutely talk about this and you would not tolerate someone who is a destructive hero. You would say, I appreciate that the, the, they, one of two things has to happen. The person either has to change their behavior to align with the organization or the organization will say, we will forego the value that they create for the company because they don't fit who we are. Yeah. And I think, and I, and I, and I, as I was thinking about you while you're saying that, I'm thinking of instances where somebody gets fired after a long time, and the basis of that termination is something that happened several years ago. And when you dig into that story, you usually find a downward slope on your performance. Yeah, I, I think that most destructive heroes that I know of, Adam, uh, it wasn't a downward slope. They, they have always exhibited questionable behavior. That, let, me, let, me, let me clarify. Their okay. results used to be great. Okay. And then yeah, their started. results used to be great. And then, the, and then their results took a downward curve. So, now, something, so something they were let go on back when they were bringing in a bunch of money, well, now go. they're not bringing in a bunch of money. Yeah. So they pull up that thing from three years ago that they let slide at the time that probably caused issues because uh, 10 to 1, around the same time that that destructive hero was let go on that violation of norms, yeah. somebody else got their ass handed to them for something that was similar to it, but not as bad. You're right, Adam. I mean, the, the fact is that what is permissible uh, in one scenario now no longer is permissible, and it's got to be confusing to the rest of the organization. Yeah, and then what you have there... Uh, it leads to disconsistency. It leads to a feeling perhaps even of hypo hypocrisy. And yes. it downgrades the company's values because it lets everybody know, hey, as long as you bring in a lot of money, you get to act however you want. But those of us who just uh, put in a day's work or those of us who don't have the opportunity to generate those same results because of where we are on the org chart, well, we better walk on eggshells. The, um, the definition I heard of a cynic is somebody who used to be passionate about the business, but no longer is. And I think that watching destructive heroes 
exist in a business is it causes people to become very cynical. And I think, uh, and I think, and this is partially based on personal experience and partially based on other people's experience, is that when they suddenly express an interest in their job description, that's usually a clue that we're heading towards cynicism. <laughs> because with, because without because without getting into it, I remember there was a there was a place where I made the transition from being really gung ho to. Well, you know what? I think I'm actually going to end up starting my own business, but I'm not in a position where I can quit yet. Now, I didn't start mailing it in or anything like that, but I can tell you that I showed up and I put in an honest-to-God day's work from 8 o'clock to 4.30 with my hour for lunch and my two 15-minute breaks, and uh, I delivered everything they were paying for, yes. but I was also checking to make sure it was on the job description. Yes, that's and exactly when, right. Yeah, and when, and when you have somebody in that position, the next step is – well, they're probably eventually just going to say the hell with it and they're going to start slacking off and actually costing us money. So that's sort of like a checkpoint to say, okay, well, if they're doing it by the book, if they're making sure that it's part of the job responsibilities, that means they're probably not really innovating. That means they're not really going above and beyond. They have conscientiousness about making sure we're getting our dollars worth and their salary when we pay them. But this is not heading in the right direction. Can we get them back? <laughs> uh, you're making me think of so many lines from the movie Office Space. Right? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. And, uh, and, and yeah, and, and that's and that's a company where they fired the guy, but they forgot to cancel his check, so he just kept showing up. <laughs> yeah, it 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 it's a travesty that should never actually exist. But what one of the one of the beautiful things is truth is usually stranger than fiction. That's right. That's right. So this has been a great conversation. And uh, I know we're at the point where we need to wrap up here, although I could go all day. Uh, you mentioned to me before we got started, you have a little gift for our listeners. So why don't we give you one minute just to share that with us now? Well, the, the whole idea is if people will come to the, the website that I have, the epleygroup.com, um, they can do a free assessment. We'll try to help them on their journey for professional management and their six disciplines. Uh, they take the assessment, it'll help them understand of the six disciplines, which one would best allow them to make the, the most progress with the least amount of, of energy or effort. Yeah, yeah. Like when I go to the epleygroup.com, I can see that right on the homepage. I'm not going to say we're on the homepage because you may have your website redesigned at some point, but I imagine that uh, there'll likely be some sort of assessment, even if somebody's tuning in five years from now. I would, think, I would think that that would be the case. That, may, that, it, that's our expectation. You may be measuring something a little bit different. It may be some different questions, but it will be a great assessment. Uh, people will find out how they measure up, and then you're going to have some insights for them on how they can focus on making some improvements. They can get some immediate value just from the couple minutes it takes to do that. I that's think that's correct. a great gift and I do encourage everybody to go to Ed's website at www.theeplegroup T-H-E-E-P-P-L-E-Y-G-R-O-U-P.com and take that assessment. So Ed Epley, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. This one was fun. Uh, it's been an honor and it's been an education. Thanks Adam. Look forward to being with you again hopefully soon. All right, all right. For everybody listening, I uh, trust you've enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. And while you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care. <laughs>